Hello you, how are you? Welcome to Tuesday's programme. It's just touching five o'clock here in Salford in the northwest of the UK. I'm Richie Allen, otherwise known as the BBG. Lots to talk about and I'm going to take some of your phone calls and some of your Skypes a bit later on as well. That's the sort of guy I am. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yes, a little bit of a change of plan today. A guest cried off later this afternoon. It doesn't matter because I've got uh, four guests for you tomorrow and Thursday. Very interesting stuff. So we can play around this afternoon. I've got some interesting things for us to chat about. You can join in via the website richieallen.co.uk. Live comment, you know the drill by now. I'll talk with you about some of these stories. We'll, we'll have a little bit of a delve into policing here in the UK. We'll talk a little bit about Partygate and what's really going on there. And then later on, a few phone calls from you, Skype and telephone and whatnot. It is Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. Your BBG live from BBG Towers here in Salford. It's lovely. It is Misha Augustusa Inyov. That means me and you today. Misha Augustusa Inyov. Don't worry, I'm not turning into Hector O'Hockagon. And nobody outside of Ireland, of course, has a clue who Hector O'Hockagon is. He's an Irish television and radio presenter. He made a very good programme many years ago. He worked for TG Cahar. TG Cahar. TG Cahar or TG4 is an Irish language station in Ireland, which when I was living in Ireland, it put on some pretty good television programmes. Osquelga, all in the Irish language. And one of the programmes was one known as Amu. Amu, it's A-M-U, Fada. And that was Hector O'Hockagon, Irish guy, all over the world, exotic locations, far east, everywhere, presenting back from those locations in the Irish language. Very good stuff. Hector. Last I heard he was working for 2FM, but that was a long time ago, so I could be wrong. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for finding me again. Shall we kick off today's programme with the BBC News at 1? BBC News at 1. Today at one, Britain's biggest police force, the Met, accused of institutional racism, misogyny and homophobia. A damning review into the force after the murder of Sarah Everard lays bare its failings and says it may have to be broken up. And this is Baroness Louise Casey. There is, without doubt, a discriminatory culture right across the Metropolitan Police. It's not in pockets. It pervades the whole organisation. This is Mark Rowley, Sir Mark, who's running the Met Police. We accept the findings of the report. Obviously, it's a deeply, deeply disturbing report. It sparks a range of emotions, as I'm sure it does for viewers and Londoners. It sparks sort of anger, frustration, um, upset. And in the last few minutes, the Home Secretary has said the Met faces a long road to recovery and that those not fit to wear the uniform must be prevented from doing so. Yeah, the Home Secretary is a woman called Suella Braverman, Conservative. She makes me laugh, really. I've got a warped sense of humour. And I like that we've known each other so long now, it doesn't matter. I'm not embarrassed about my silly sense of humour. She was caught by Sky News reporter Jason Farrell, 
for a quick question, and this just made me laugh. It shouldn't make me laugh, but it made me laugh. Nearly 25 years since the McPherson Review found that the police was institutionally racist. Now, not only are they found to be racist, but also misogynistic and homophobic. It's like a hat trick. That's what made me laugh today. Stupid things make me laugh. Nearly 25 years ago. Nearly 25 years since the McPherson Review found that the police was institutionally racist. Now, not only are they found to be racist, but also misogynistic and homophobic. Brilliant. And if, we, if we're found to be transphobic in the next couple of years, we'll get a set of steak knives. That's my stupid sense of humour. It's all mad. What, what is going on? First of all, please, if you have had an experience with the police, it doesn't need to be the Metropolitan Police in Greater London. It could be anywhere. It could be in the UK. Let's keep it to the UK. But if it's outside the UK, what sort of experiences have you had when you have encountered the police? Let me know. Live comment, comment live richieallen.co.uk. I will be reading those out. She said Louise Casey, Baroness Louise Casey, who released the report, discriminatory culture across the Metropolitan Police, not in pockets, it pervades the entire organisation. Okay, Casey was tasked with investigating the Met. Why? Well, after the police officer Wayne Cousins murdered Sarah Everard, he's in jail now. She says, as you heard, institutional racism, sexism and homophobia were present across the organisation. What does institutional mean in the context she has put it or placed it? What does it mean? Does it mean it's everywhere in the Met? Does it mean everybody? Does it mean from the top down? Because when you think institutional, you think leaders, you think bosses, don't you? You think detective chief superintendents. You think um, chief constables, all that sort of stuff. I don't know. Mark Rowley says he accepts her diagnosis. However, it isn't institutional. Casey spoke to serving officers as part of this investigation. One black female officer said she felt she had to try to be invisible. If not, she would have a reputation as being a troublemaker. A former senior officer said... Uh, talked about the humiliating experience of being stopped and searched while off duty. Another black officer said colleagues had on occasion mistaken him for a prisoner or potential intruder in police stations. How is that possible? He would have been wearing a uniform, presumably, or maybe not. Maybe he was a detective. Another black female officer said that um, they witnessed a white officer using offensive racist language to verbally abuse a white woman who had been caught buying drugs from a black man. The report found a persistent view among some in the Met Police that those from ethnic minorities who progress do so only because of affirmative action or positive action initiatives, right? One senior officer said that uh, he or she was openly asked in a large meeting uh, two years ago, or a year ago in fact, did you get where you got to because you are black? Okay, and a Sikh officer said that the Sikhs don't feel comfortable and they don't tell other Sikhs to recruit, to uh, join police recruitment drives and to join the force anecdotal. So pretty much most of this is anecdotal. Now I'm not for a second suggesting the officers who responded were lying. Of course, I'm not doing that. And I don't like the police, so I'm not, um, you know, but institutional. I don't like the police, so don't for imagine think I'm giving the police a pass here. Is racism, misogyny and homophobia institutional in 
the Met Police is it institutional in wider policing in this country. I'm in Manchester, Salford. In fact, I'm in Salford. How dare I wash my mouth, mouth even out with carbolic soap? Um, I'm here in Salford, so it's GMP Greater Manchester Police. Is it racist, misogynistic and homophobic? Well, let's ask this question. It's an important question. We know the answer to it. Is racism, misogyny and homophobia institutional across society? Of course it isn't. It isn't. In recent years, a number of major studies have found that the UK is one of the most tolerant places to live on earth. Look it up. I'm not making this up to support my own argument. Racism, misogyny and homophobia is not institutional in UK society. So if Baroness Louise Casey is right and the Met Police is institutionally racist, misogynistic and homophobic, why is that? That's the $64 million question, which is not being asked, of course, by the legacy media today. If society isn't, and it isn't, why is the police, if she's right, that is? And I'm not sure she is right. Because I think if you walk into any organisation in the world, if you walked into a big building, if you walked into a farmer's convention in Las Vegas, you'd find a couple of um, people who don't take too fondly to gay people. You'll find a couple of misogynists. If you go to uh, a football match on a, on a Wednesday evening in Barnet, you'll find a couple of thousand people and you'll probably find two or three idiots with attitudes that we would find a little bit outdated. But institutional is it really and if it is why is it this is important i'm going somewhere with this is it the vetting i would have imagined that the vetting procedures when the police forces in this country open a recruitment drive vetting must be pretty stringent i would have imagined i would have imagined that by now in 2023 they would have it down to a t they would be able, down to a T, they would be able to separate the wheat from the chaff, people who are appropriate for the job and others who are not. So vetting and recruitment is obviously a big one. What about training? They go through quite a bit of training before they qualify as police officers. Surely opportunities are being missed if Louise Casey is correct and it is institutionally racist, misogynistic and homophobic surely they're missing opportunities um, where they could see that somebody isn't suitable for the process you know Alan Sugar like you're fired, like it's just not for you, I can see you have a tendency to be angry, I, I can see that you're not the best to you know to um, you know to resolve conflicts and stuff to defuse a situation opportunities to notice that a trainee is a wrong one, as they say in these parts. But what if this report, and this is just a what if, because I know squat about anything, as you well know, dear listener. Modesty is not uh, the thing here. I don't know. So this is a what if only, okay? And if you are a minority person and you've had a negative experience with the police in the past, I'm, I'd love to hear from you. I'll either read out what it is you send me or you can come on and have a chat with me. I haven't had too many negative experiences with the police. Oh, because you're a white, baldy, middle-aged guy. Most people in Ireland look like me, except most of them have hair, maybe. But most of them are or were white. That's not it. I'll come back to that a bit later on. What if this report dropping today and the calls for drastic, dramatic changes to how policing is done or how policing is carried out 
what if this is one gigantic fart? A massive fart. This is an old American political political analogy. A big fart. The report being used to cover up a number of less noisy but more smelly farts. Apologies for the crude analogy. But it's an old political adage in America. One loud fart covers up any number of smaller emissions but equally toxic. You get what I'm saying here? Now, my police force here is Greater Manchester Police, not that the Met, it's not the Met, but it doesn't matter, as I've said already. And as a taxpayer, am I concerned about the fact that the police has within its ranks a few homophobes, a few misogynists, and a few racists? Am I? Well, I might be. I might have a moral compass. I might think, well, that's not particularly good if you're going to be policing the public. But I'm also concerned about the fact that the police don't solve crimes. And maybe they should be sued under the Trades Description Act. They don't solve crimes. They just don't. Up here in uh, Lancashire, excuse me because that's a different police force entirely, up here in Manchester Salford, Greater Manchester Police had to be put in special measures because they don't solve crimes. Not turning up to burglaries. Not turning up to domestic abuse situations. Not listening to women who have been sexually abused. Making a complete bollocks of the forensic stuff when they go to investigate rape allegations and stuff. It's about the worst police force in the world up here. So do you think the people up here are concerned with whether or not they're homophobic or misogynistic, Greater Manchester Police? Now they might be. Actually, funny, funnily enough, the two things might be related. I don't know. I'm not saying they're not. Useless up here. You know my story. I don't need to get into it again. Utterly useless. No community police. None. No beat cops. Living in the heart of Salford. In the heart of this city. Absolutely no beat cops. None. None. It is something I ask of my neighbours regularly. People I meet. It is something I am on the lookout all the time for. When I'm out running and I run seven days a week. Langworthy Road, Liverpool Street, Ordzel, Media City, not a sausage, not a sniff of a cop, no beat cops. And that's not how it used to be. We used to have beat cops, we used to have them in Ballybeg and Waterford, where I grew up, and it was always the same police so that they could get to know the people living in the village, in the community, get to know their names, the names of their children, what they did for a living, not snooping on them, just being part of that community and defusing certain things before they started, sometimes a little clip on the ear for the little gurrier, as we call them, back home, the, the problem child was causing a nuisance for his neighbours, that sort of stuff. And they wore uniforms, they wore navy trousers, even the band guardie, the female guardie, they wore a jumper with a short navy again and a tie. They had an overcoat, they had a hat, they had their walkie-talkie and they looked professional. But then we saw the transformation of the police officer I just described into a paramilitary soldier. They now look like Mexican drug cartels, the police officers, except they're not wearing khaki, they're wearing black Kevlar. They look like Robocop. Massive changes to policing in 20 years. I could talk about Tony Blair's target system, increasing bureaucracy, result, resulting in police officers spending 
Complete days, complete shifts, by the way. Filling out paperwork in triplicate and quadruplicate and quintuplicate and God knows what else after they'd observed something and not going back out on the beat and all of this stuff that's gone on. They've wrecked policing. It no longer resembles the, the, the policing that we would have experienced when we grew up. It's a disaster. Why? Is this one massive fart here to cover up all manner of less noisy but twice as smelly emissions? Where are they taking policing? Privatising, um, maybe, maybe not, yeah. Outsourcing it more and more to private security companies, that's on the menu. Destroy something first before you break it up and remould it, maybe, not just privatisation. I want to talk to you about an article that Bernard Marr wrote for Forbes magazine a couple of years ago. Stay with me, dear listener. You at the back, wake up. Stop looking out the window or you'll be playing against the Masters rugby team later on this afternoon. Stay awake for this. This is interesting. So Bernard Marr, a couple of years ago, writing for Forbes magazine, he decided he'd have a look at where policing is going. Let me give you a couple of paragraphs from what he found. This is excellent stuff. I tried to find this guy to ask him to come on the programme. Data. And the volume of data being generated by you, by me, by our wives, our husbands, right? By our children, by everybody. The data is massive. It's exploding. It's expanding. And it's going to be hugely useful to the police when it comes to fighting crime in the very near future. Marr writes about the Internet of Things. He writes about devices such as video doorbells, part of the Internet of Things, voice assistance, and the ability of that of that technology to capture incidental goings-on in their environment. Snoopy devices becoming increasingly important to the police and becoming valuable sources of intelligence for officers and detectives. Data from an Alexa smart speaker was used by a court in the United States to assist in a double murder case. Data from Fitbit fitness trackers, which agents I see when I'm out on my run, use strapped to their arms, which are emitting signals, of course, and use Wi-Fi. Data from Fitbit fitness trackers have been used in several cases, including in one case of a man accused of killing his wife. And you might say, well, in some circumstances, that's not bad because it might lead to the exoneration of somebody. Yes, they always sell these things with these benevolent usage points, don't they? Yeah, it's benevolent, though, you know. People will be excluded from our inquiries. Yeah, but there's a lot more to it than that. And apparently more than 400 police forces in America have partnered up with video doorbell manufacturer Ring to access data captured from those devices. Of course, they've had to get permission from the person who owns the device, obviously. Smart city infrastructure, writes Bernard Marr, will increasingly be built with functionality to assist with crime prevention and detection controlling traffic lights to assist the police and ambulance crews. And it gets even more sinister. Smart, um, what did he call it? Uh, What did he call it? Smart, 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 smart detection. He talks about smart city infrastructure. He talks about 
one network of devices specifically built to tackle crime in the US known as Shot Spotter. Now this was introduced, Shot Spotter, as microphones attached to infrastructure like street lamps and bus stop shelters and whatnot. And this was sold to people, and this is being used now as we speak. This was sold to people like, uh, well, we'll be able to detect the sound of gunfire and then we'll race to the scene of the crime. But as I've been looking into, and I'm going away from his article now, that technology will be adapted to listen to conversations. And in fact, it's already, it has already been shown to be able to eavesdrop on conversations happening as much as 100 feet away from where the conversation is happening. He talks about computer vision, right, which is traditionally, well not traditionally because it's pretty new, used for automatic license plate recognition, enabling cameras to identify cars and their drivers. And this will be married to facial recognition, which as we know has been controversial here in the UK with the police force down south. Uh, was it the Met Police was found to be using it unlawfully? It might have been the Met Police, right? But it doesn't matter. It's not going away. It's becoming increasingly common for the police to use facial recognition technology married with computer vision. This is where it's going now. And I think this is directly related to what we heard today about policing here in the UK and the need to change it. Robots. I detect is a system they're rolling out now, which they're using on people without their permission. It's a technology that can um, determine whether or not somebody is telling lies or not by analysing microscopic movements in the eyes and in the face of a subject. It's even being used by employers in the United States in job interviews. Imagine. I wonder have they asked permission from the candidate. Listen, welcome to, I don't know, Big Tech in industry. Thanks for your application. Sit down. I wonder, did they tell them that they're pointing something at their eyes and at their face to determine whether or not they're telling lies? That's a waste of money anyway, because everybody lies in job interviews, right? About everything. Everybody exaggerates their achievements. So he talks about robots then, which is coming and coming very soon. He says, society probably isn't ready for Robocop just yet, but autonomous mobile units will play an increasingly important part in a number of specialist roles in coming years. And he goes on to talk about bomb disposal, but also um, live shooter situations. Autonomous vehicles and robots going into supermarkets and office buildings and God knows where else because they have deemed it too dangerous for SWAT to go in or the armed response unit as we would call them here in the UK. He talks about artificial reality being used to... Um, who wrote Minority Report? It, it wasn't Huxley, so it wasn't. It always escapes me. Uh, Philip Dick wrote Minority Report? No, I can't remember. But he talks about pre-crime and how this is already on the menu in China using AR glasses, police there. Uh, you know, to identify suspects and those who are wanted for questions, augmented reality, feeding information about people. This is artificial intelligence, not the police now, the artificial intelligence gathering information about people based on what they do online and based on how they are observed in society. So you're being watched all the time and you're being listened to 
right? And of course, you're on the internet all the time, you're on Twitter. And artificial intelligence will take all of that stuff and will start to predict who's likely to commit a crime. This is, you know, is it connected to what we saw today, any of this? Is this fanciful in the extreme? You know, say that policing is untenable, that the Met Police, at the outset, because it's only the Met Police today, not the other police forces in the UK, is incapable, isn't fit for purpose. Now, of course, they're not going to say tomorrow, let's get rid of all the policemen and women from the Met Police and let's bring all of this stuff in. No, it doesn't work like that. But these are ready-made solutions for people who are finding it increasingly difficult to trust the police. And of course, they're right not to trust the police. The police exists to protect the establishment, not to protect you or me. Again, without boring you with my own recent personal story, they don't give a damn. Don't give a damn. Not interested. Nothing in it for us. Yeah, but there's Drivers out there who fled the scene, these are bad people. They, they didn't care that they knocked somebody down and might have killed them. They have to be stopped. We're not interested. You see? Mad stuff this, isn't it? Artificial intelligence, computer vision, the internet of things. And pretty soon, drones will be patrolling the sky, watching everything. I told you this story about my... my, my how, how would I say this? My my father-in-law, my honorary father-in-law, honorary, in his village in the northeast of France, I read this in the papers, this was back during lockdown one, drones patrolled the village, this is true, you can read about it online, and drones were used to tell people to get indoors lest they be arrested and fined. Drones. That conjures up images of James Cameron's Terminator movies. Films. I'm not American. And these robots, these autonomous things, they can be, they can be hybrid devices, these things, right? So they can be entirely autonomous. Or a police officer who hasn't lost his or her job because of the technology, they can put a virtual reality headset on and control the thing. Again, negating the need to send a human police officer into a danger zone. Just send a robot in. These are mad, just crazy things. Watching everything, responding. Drones. Everywhere. They won't need police then. I mean, they don't patrol cities anyway. They don't patrol communities. But drones are the next thing. Right? So they're saying today that policing is basically lost with all hands. Right? No trust in policing, uh, institutional racism, misogyny and homophobia. Okay, they're not going to roll this stuff out tomorrow, but it's imminent, and that's a really interesting article. I will post it to richieallen.co.uk later on or tomorrow morning. Bernard Marr in Forbes. That's where policing is going. That's the technocratic society where we live, you know, where, where, where cashless reigns for a start. Very interesting. Let's get the final word on the policing report by the inveterate, which means spineless, uh, the useless and the ever-cretinous James O'Brien from LBC. O'Brien took, out of everything that was said today about the Met Police, O'Brien took this uh, out of it. He, he extracted this. On wokeness, O'Brien says the right-wing media berated the police for being woke, right? When, for example, they turned up at pride parades, 
and danced with the participants of the Pride Parades or when they painted their squad cars, they didn't do the painting, but when the squad cars were painted in the rainbow colours, O'Brien says the media berated the right wing, excuse me, the right wing media berated the cops for being too woke. But he says woke is better than the metropolitan police behaviour, which is the opposite of woke, he says. This is quite the thing. Have a listen to this. The same people who have been railing against rainbow helmets on the on the heads of police officers or someone daring to do the conga at Pride or uh, a police officer dancing at the Notting Hill Carnival. Years I've been reading this in tabloid newspapers while also reading about epic levels of collusion between particularly senior Rupert Murdoch journalists and senior police officers. The Daniel Morgan case remains unresolved. Leveson got kicked into the long grass by David Cameron. And then this comes out. The same newspapers that have been encouraging you to throw your toys out of your pram about a copper in a multicoloured helmet. Now telling you that, oh, actually, it turns out maybe that stuff we called woke, maybe it is quite important because the opposite of woke is institutionalised Racism, sexism and homophobia. More intellectual redundancy from O'Brien at LBC. The media didn't initiate complaints against police officers dancing at Pride or photographing themselves in front of their rainbow-coloured squad cars. Ordinary men and women did. And that is a fact. That outcry about police officer behaviour didn't come from the right-wing tabloids. It came from ordinary folks like me. Hit and run nearly killed me, but the police don't care. But if you misgender somebody or set fire to a pride flag, God forbid, and, well, they're there at 100 miles an hour. Absolute nonsense from O'Brien. Nonsense. It's what you expect from the mainstream media. Have you had an encounter with the police? What was it like? Are you an ethnic minority person? You're not supposed to say that anymore. A BAME person. You're not supposed to say that anymore either. A person of colour. Have you had a run in with the old Bill? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, this is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. And this is Jane Weedlin and Rush Hour. Because it is Rush Hour now. It is in the UK anyhow. Lots more to come between now and six o'clock and then I'll open the phones. Won't that be cool? Back in three. Rush Hour from Jane Weedland, The Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live Monday to Thursday, five o'clock GMT. It won't be GMT, it'll be BST from next week, won't it, of course? Got some really good guests for you coming up this week. Gerald Salente is back on the show tomorrow. I love the man. I've been speaking to Gerald Salente now for over 12 years. Christy Laura Grace will be on the programme tomorrow as well. That's Gerald Salente, Christy Laura Grace. Put those in your diary. And Sonia Elijah will be amongst the guests on Thursday. So top heavy with guests. So I thought we might open the phone line and the Skype line again a bit later on get some more calls in. Why not? You know the details now. I'll play the jingle a few times between now and 6 o'clock just in case, you know. It's your call. Skype, 
Chat with Richie. Or call 0161 818 2018. If you're calling from overseas, it's plus 44 161 818 2018. Talk to Richie now. Now, James was in touch to say one of his good friends has been in the Met for almost two decades. He said it's almost impossible to do his job and it's getting worse that good coppers are leaving in droves and they are recruiting woke youngsters. That is interesting because obviously things began to get... Obviously things changed under Thatcher and Major, no doubt. But it was expedited under Blair, the bureaucracy and the targets, right? So your friend then would have come in probably three, four, five years after this was initiated by Blair, uh, James. Thanks for sharing that. That is very interesting. And Hazy says, the UK police would not believe I couldn't walk when they wanted me to move, but she doesn't tell us where they wanted her to move from. I laughed and filmed, or they laughed and they laughed and filmed me as I dragged myself along. Wouldn't ring up social services to prove my status. The police wouldn't ring up social services. They tied my hands, threw me in the back of the paddy wagon, paddy wagon even, which broke my foot. I've no criminal record, never have been cautioned, never have been arrested. I offered to help with education for their force to avoid future incidents. Of course, they didn't take me up on the offer. That's an interesting story, Hazy, but it's missing some important details. As to why, where were you and what were you doing, you naughty old minx? What were you doing? Let us know. Diane says the Sikhs, um, it's not about race when it comes to Sikhs not wanting to join. It's the fact that Sikhs are intrinsically honest, decent people. That does not fit in with the ethos of modern policing. Thanks for that, Diane. Isabel says, what if all the noise made about a racist police force? And the need for drastic changes is the planned excuse to bring in the army to replace the police force. Now, that's a legitimate question. You'll remember that during the COVID lockdowns, particularly the first one, there was a lot of talk about getting, bringing in the army temporarily, of course, they said at the time, temporarily, yeah, right, to carry out the duties of not just, you know, ambulance staff and I'm not mixing two issues up now because they did talk about getting the army in to cover when ambulance drivers went on strike. I know that. But if you look back, during COVID lockdowns, they were, of course, talking about getting the army in to do a lot of things, including to police the lockdowns. Yes, yes, absolutely. It'll be suggested as time goes on when they ramp up their climate fear bollocks more and more and warn us that, I mean, they said yesterday, we've got to bring forward net zero by 10 years now. It's got to be 2040 instead of 2050 because we're running out of time. I mean, w once that reaches its ultimate hysterical pitch, once that reaches, you know, peak hysteria, and they have scared the absolute crap out of every child in the world in the next few years, in 10, 15 years' time, those children who are being terrified now about climate catastrophe, they'll be young adults, and I guarantee you, dear listener, they will be pretty receptive to offers of, let's get the army in to police people's movements, to make sure people are obeying the law to save the planet, right? You ask some of these Extinction Rebellion people, you ask some of these Insulate Britain people, if 
get them on their own, right? Because these are evangelicals, these people. You sit down with them and say, do you know what we should do? The UK is not at war. It's not likely to be at war. It's very unlikely that anybody's going to attack the UK. Forget all of this Russian nonsense. Do you know what we should do? We should get the army out to make sure that people are abiding by their obligations in the climate crisis, in the fight to save the planet. We should engage the army, you know, on a kind of a kind of a chilled, in a kind of a chilled way now, you know, to be kind of out and about making sure that people are not driving where they shouldn't be driving and whatnot. I tell you, in my opinion, a lot of these evangelicals today would say that's a good idea, that. Yeah, what are the army good for? Absolutely. Dave says social media and the likes are just the Stasi for the Angry Birds generation. Bridget says, I reckon sexual harassment has been common in the police forever. In the 70s, when living in a remote rural area, I naively contacted them a couple of times and then gave up. Both times, they insisted on visiting my home, even when that was unnecessary. All they were interested in, says Bridget, was getting into my knickers. I was very young and they were completely taking advantage. That's interesting, Bridget. Because Baroness Louise Casey did highlight several cases in her report where members of the public, women, had reported something to the police and the attending officer had later on sent inappropriate text messages to the lady who had reported the crime. Now, that is absolutely fucking shocking. I mean, that is absolutely outrageous. I mean, where do you get your balls? I mean... You get called out to speak to a woman and there's obviously, and it could be a burglary or something, and you think it's appropriate later on to text her, compliment her on her looks and then invite her out. I mean, that's absolutely bang out of order. Yeah. Look, there are bound to be bad apples, but institutional, is it? Can it be institutional in an area of society, even if it isn't institutional in society at large? I will not be convinced that the UK is institutionally racist, misogynistic or homophobic because that is bollocks. It is not true. People here are hyper-tolerant. They were incredibly tolerant until recently. Now they're scared shitless of not being tolerant. Now they're going out of their way to be tolerant. Virtue signalling their tolerance. Look at me, I'm an ally. An ally of what, you dipstick? I'm an ally of the LGBTQ++ community. So... There's no issue here with homophobia, misogyny or racism anymore. No matter how many black people get dragged on to Good Morning Britain to say we're racist, we're not. We're not going to be gaslighted or gaslit. We're not racist. We don't care. Jesus, there's every colour and creed in Salford now. Even in three years it's changed. I nearly said dramatically. I claim that word dramatically. Drastically, even in the three years, in terms of the ethnic makeup of the region. All manner of people. Black people with very, very dark skin, with not so dark skin. Mixed race people. People from Eastern Europe. People speaking weird and wonderful dialects. And do you know what, dear listener? The people around here, the white people around here, just don't give a shit. Why not, Baldy? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons they don't give a shit. Because they've got too much else to worry about. 
I ain't got much time. It reminds me of that scene in Father Ted, the farmer. Are you a racist now, Father? I'm not a racist. Where did you hear that? And the old farmer, he just ignores him completely. The only thing is, I don't have much time for the racism, you see. With the farm and everything, at the end of the day, I just like a cup of tea. Don't have time for racism. People in this country now, cost of living, wrecked, businesses destroyed over COVID, mental health shattered because of lockdowns, the fear porn of the media and the government convincing them they were in a biblical plague situation when they weren't. People are all over the place. They have no time for racism. No time for it. I've no time for racism, no. I've not got two pence to rub together. Can't put a uniform on my child's back to send him to school. So no, I, I, I'm really not too bothered about who's living in number 53. Couldn't give an arse, really. And uh, yeah, Philip K. Dick, I was right the second time. Thank you very much. And the guy who wrote the article for Forbes magazine about how policing is going to evolve... It's a guy called Bernard Marr, M-A-R-R. You'll find it if you look for it on a search engine. If you don't, I will put a link to the article on the website. If not, later on, first thing in the morning. Yeah, it's a very good article. And it was published in 2022, so two years ago. Pretty sure of where we're going. Now, Boris Johnson has accepted that he misled Parliament over COVID rule-breaking parties in Downing Street. But he denied that he did it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I broke the rules, but I didn't do it on purpose, says Johnson. So what he did today was he published a 50-page defense of his actions during lockdown, or lockdowns. He will face the Privileges Committee tomorrow. He will be questioned for four hours. The media are wetting their undercrackers and their knickerbockers with excitement. It is pathetic to watch you, t- you, you too, to watch UK anchors, television anchors today, absolutely licking their lips. We can't wait for this tomorrow. Box office. It's a puppet show. It's theatrical nonsense. It doesn't mean a damn thing. But something which always strikes me about these things, let's just stay with this for a minute. It's quarter to the top of the hour. So in his dossier today, Johnson said, his assurances to MPs that lockdown rules had been followed were made in good faith. So I misled you. I didn't mean to, but that was done in good faith. He could be suspended. He could be expelled from Parliament, depending on what the Privilege Committee recommends. Now, whatever the Privileges Committee recommends, it will then go to a vote by MPs, right? And Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, said... No matter what the Privileges Committee recommends as a punishment for Johnson, the Conservative Party will be given a free vote. So Johnson said this, he said, uh, I didn't intentionally or recklessly mislead the Commons. My actions were based on what I believed at the time. They were based on advice that I was given. It was reasonable for me to rely on assurances from my advisers that the rules were followed. He called his former chief advisor, Dominic Cummins, liar, liar, pants on fire. Uh, Johnson, uh, Cummings says that Johnson was told by him that he was in breach of his own COVID guidelines. Johnson says that conversation never happened. This will... Um, as I said, be everybody will cover this tomorrow. It'll be relentless, this appearance by Johnson in front of the Privileges 
committee, but this is what interests me, the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice UK group. Give me strength. The COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice UK group, they say it is sickening that the Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister, is claiming that he acted in good faith, while at the same time accepting he misled the Commons. Writing on Twitter, the group says it's obvious that Johnson deliberately misled Parliament, therefore he should resign as an MP. And they quoted somebody, a woman called Catherine the Proto, Catherine the Pruto or Proto, a psychotherapist from Leeds. Her father died alone in April 2020 and they were only permitted five people at the funeral. I have sympathy for that woman. Earlier today, a guy called David from Southport, he phoned in the Jeremy Vine Channel 5 television programme. I think Nick Ferrari was in the hot seat today, but David from Southport, listen carefully. On the 13th of November 2020, uh, I uh, went to my son's funeral at 3 o'clock in Southport. I'm so sorry. And uh, by all accounts, at 5 o'clock, the Prime Minister's wife was dancing round number 10. Uh, singing The Winner Takes It All at the dismissal of Dominic Cummings. Well, there's no words that I can offer my condolences, but what I have to ask is how does that make you feel if the facts are right as you present them, David? Well, I mean, we kept to the rule. <coughs> Sorry. Um, we were only allowed six people at the funeral, including his mum and dad. Yes. Yeah. And I couldn't even sit next to my wife properly. I'm so, so sorry. When you see... Boris Johnson on the TV, or you see those images of the parties. What goes through your I'm heart, sorry. sir? I'm sorry, I can't stand the man. Okay. I despise him completely. Okay. I... He's been proved a proven liar and a cheat, whatever, whatever you want to call him. It's that's Boris. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll have to go now. Okay, sir. Again, condolences, of course, from from Tessa, from Chris, and from all the Hopefully. team here. I'm very sorry. This is obviously playing very understandably, very much on your conscience. Yeah, on your conscience. I'm sure Nick Ferrari and the team at Channel 5 are desperately sorry for poor David. And this is the thing. I think we've had this out before, you and I, you and me, Misha Augustusa. This is the thing that absolutely drives me around the bend. While I genuinely, because I'm a human being, sympathise with that man whose son passed away, not because of COVID, but he passed away during the first lockdown and restrictions were placed on the funeral and all of that. And then he sees the video and the photographs of Johnson and his wife dancing around Downing Street, laughing because Dominic Cummings had left Downing Street and was no longer working for uh, Johnson. This guy is saying, it's terrible, it's terrible. Look what happened to me, 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 me. And these guys are dancing around. Can you help me out today, dear listener? Why is it that these people cannot make the very simple leap? I'm not Alfred Einstein. Boom, boom. I'm not Albert Einstein, right? But I think I'd make the leap, even if I hadn't awoken, to use that term, years ago to the agendas we talk about on this programme. It would have occurred to my inquisitive mind. Maybe the reason they're dancing around is because they're not remotely concerned about COVID-19. And that I wouldn't focus on the fact that I did the right thing, I was a good citizen, and they didn't. 
They didn't. That's not the point, David. Or Catherine, whose father died and only five people could go to the funeral. Why, why can you not make the leap and ask the obvious question? Why were they so unafraid of COVID-19? Because the answer is a scary one for people who don't want to admit they were duped. The answer is because COVID-19 was nothing to be scared about whatsoever. We don't play this clip often enough. It's England's Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty back in June of 2020. To balance two things. The seriousness of this virus as an epidemic, and it clearly is a very serious epidemic, but equally the fact that actually the great majority of people will not die from this. And I'll just repeat something I said right at the beginning because I think it's worth reinforcing. Most people, are, well, a significant proportion of people will not get this virus at all at any point in the epidemic, which is going to go on for a long period of time. Of those who do, some of them will get the virus without even knowing it. They will have the virus with no symptoms at all, asymptomatic carriage, and we know that happens. Of those who get symptoms, the great majority, probably 80%, will have a mild or moderate disease, might be bad enough for them to have to go to bed for a few days, not bad enough for them to have to go to the doctor. An unfortunate minority will have to go as far as hospital, but the majority of those will just need oxygen and will then leave hospital. And then a minority of those will end up having to go to severe uh, end critical care, and some of those sadly will die. But that's a minority. It's 1% it's or possibly even less than 1% overall. And even in the highest risk group, uh, this is significantly less than 20%, i.e. the great majority of people, even the very highest groups, if they catch this virus, will not die. Yeah, even, the, the, even those who are most at risk, even those in the very highest risk groups, the majority of them will not die. And people are still getting their knickers in a twist about the fact that they did the right thing while Johnson and his mates had the time of their lives in Downing Street. It's not the point that you did the right thing. That's no longer the point. It's no longer relevant. You should be asking, why were they not scared of COVID-19 when they were putting advertisements in the newspapers and magazines and on bus shelters saying that we were killing people if we were breaking the rules? Wakey, wakey, you know. It's not that difficult a leap to make. This is the Richie Allen Show, live from Salford in the UK, in the northwest of the UK. I'm Richie Allen, back with some more in a moment, and I'll be taking your telephone and Skype calls if you choose to ring me. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Time is coming up for six and a half minutes to the top of the hour. Now... Where was I going to go now? Just briefly. Where will I go very briefly? Yeah, look, very briefly. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, as we mentioned yesterday. Just some mad stuff on legacy media today about this. John McTernan, maybe you need to be a journalist to remember John McTernan, maybe you don't. McTernan was Tony Blair's director of political operations at the time. Right, a bastard. Um, an accessory to genocide. That's who John McTernan is. He was on GB News this morning with Bev Turner and Andrew Pierce. Have a listen. 20 years Had of Iraq war yesterday, John. Do you feel like we've had that apology from Tony Blair? Do you feel like we've had the apology from Tony Blair, says Bev Turner, to one of Tony Blair's besties? Well, 
What to apologise for? For liberating Iraq? Liberating Iraq. What he means is liberating um, three million Iraqis, including half a million children, liberating them from their lives, is what he means. Is that how for you see it with the passage of defend, time? Defending the United Nations weapons spectrum regime. Um, well, there's nothing to apologise for. Well, there is. There's the hundreds of thousands of people who died. Mm. Hundreds of thousands, Andrew. It was millions. The, by fact terrorists. That, the, the fact that Killed Saddam Hussein was, was executed and a democracy did not replace it. Uh, it uh, the Islamic State stepped in. The Middle East has been in a state of absolute chaos ever since. That's He's got Iran. a huge... It's funny how Andrew Pierce of the Daily Mail had fuck all to say about these things back in 2003, isn't it? Apology. Why do you know? You're the first it's, person it's like I know this, to this defend is everything. it. This is everything. This is this is this is the extraordinary situation of modern British politics. Um, Tony Blair stood down as prime minister in 2007, and yet everything apparently is his fault. It's his responsibility. Like the Iraq War was a just war. The Iraq War, we know, 20 years on, was was not an illegal war. It was a legal war. Liar. Um, and the Iraq War actually was in defence of the United Nations weapons inspectors. If weapons inspectors can't... The Iraq war was in defence of United Nations weapons inspectors. You see, I, as a man of peace, as a man who preaches peace, peaceful means of resolving conflict, of conflict resolution, I'd have gone across the desk at him today. Think of Richard Medley being attacked by Shaken Stevens. I'd have gone for John McTernan. The Iraq war was to defend United Nations weapons inspectors, says John McTernan. We really are living in surreal times now, aren't we? Can't get in to inspect. Um, there, but there was never any evidence. No. There was never any evidence there was of weapons of mass destruction. Well, there's plenty. There and he stood up in the House of Commons and Tony Blair lied and he said, he we have lie. evidence of weapons of mass lie. destruction. Nobody, and he said to Bush, I will be with you no matter what, regardless of the human collateral damage, regardless of the vacuum that is left in that space. Don't you remember the dodgy dossier? Had a proper explanation. The dodgy dossier? They sexed up every single country. The murder of Dr. David Kelly? The murder of Dr. David Kelly? By MI5, probably? Blood all over Tony Blair's hands there, surely. In the West, had the same intelligence. Same intelligence. Not how many um, of them joined the military and, action? Uh, yeah, I know. So the Th then they ask, um, Dawn Neeson was there. Dawn Neeson is, is a former editor of the Daily Star. I, I Have we learned anything? No, I don't think we have, sadly. Um, as, as we've already discussed, many thousands of people died. And, you know, I, I do think Tony Blair still has questions to answer on that one and all this recollections may vary if we talk about Boris Johnson being very bullish and not admitting that he ever does anything wrong I think Tony Blair does is cut from the same cloth um, and, and Tony Blair has gone on to make millions of pounds from it as well which I, I rankles a bit Mm. He's advised in pretty dodgy countries too. Exactly. And mm. continues to be at the centre of lots of global political decisions which upset a lot of people. What decisions? Digital ID. That's he's, not a decision. He's put, he's, put, he's put forward an opinion. Him and William Hague have got the same opinion. Biometric I mean, digital ID, which no doubt he will make a lot of money out of. How? The Tony Blair Foundation has tentacles in all of these it huge it, it, it doesn't run a software company, it doesn't run a digital ID company, it doesn't run... Like, it, it's so not, what's in it for him then? Why is he the, why is he he the spokesperson it, for well, that? Well, because he, actually, he and William Hague both agree that we actually should have 
a modernized ID system for this country. So Every other country in Europe has got one. So why? why because why nobody has voted for it. It's not democratic. That has not been on any no, ref not been not. on any political agenda. And suddenly Tony Blair's parachuted in, telling us we're all going to be tied to our tech no, with biometric Tony, digital ID. Tony, a lot of people Tony, don't like it, Tony John. Tony Blair and William Hague together wrote that report. That towering political figure, William Hayes, who led the Tories... Led the Tories to their worst election defeat against Tony Blair in 2001. The worst election defeat yeah, in 170 years. towering political uh, figure. Yeah, and just to, to really make you grind your old teeth there. Ian Dale, LBC Radio. If you wonder sometimes how important is Tony Blair to the tyranny that has come in the past and the tyranny to come in the future. If you wonder about Blair, how important is Blair? Even his natural enemies like Tory Ian Dale, Ian Dale who presents for LBC in the afternoons, is a Tory to his bone marrow. On three occasions he attempted to win a seat for the Tories and on three occasions he failed miserably. He is as useless as tits on a bull, is Ian Dale. And even though he should be the natural political enemy of Tony Blair, he will not say a word about the murderer. Listen to Ian Dale yesterday afternoon. Listen. And I still don't believe that, that anyone has ever been able to cite an international law. I don't think you're right. I don't think the UN Charter counts as that. I, no one's ever been able to cite a law that Tony Blair has broken. Because if he had, he would have been indicted. Or if there was a suspicion that he had, oh my he God. would have been indicted probably by the ICC, the International Criminal Court, who've just indicted Vladimir Putin. But then, of course, George W. Bush couldn't have been indicted under that because the, IC the United States isn't a member of the ICC, but the United Kingdom is. This is your media now. This is your conservative media talking about Tony Blair. And I still don't believe that, that anyone has ever been able to cite an international law... I don't think you're right. I don't think the UN Charter counts as that. I, no one's ever been able to cite a law that Tony Blair has broken because if he had, he would have been indicted. Or if there was a suspicion that he had, he would have been indicted probably by the ICC, the International Criminal Court, who've just indicted Vladimir Putin. But then, of course... That's not naivety, by the way. Because he couldn't be that naive. Oh, Tony didn't commit any crimes in Iraq because if he did, the ICC would have arrested him. Until the ICC put out a arrest warrant for the Russian President Vladimir Putin, to the best of my knowledge, every not everyone, everyone but one, pretty much 98% of those pursued by the ICC over the years are black dictators from sub-Saharan African countries. <laughs> what are the odds of Tony Blair... Listen, I think I might have uh, done it. I might have made an absolute bags of it. I think I have pinned the contact details to the top of live comment on richieallen.co.uk. I might have managed it. I'll open the phones now. For as long as we get some calls, we'll have a chat. Before I do that and forget it, tomorrow, very interesting program tomorrow and Thursday. This is an interesting program today. But tomorrow we've got uh, Christy Laura Grace on the programme. Before her, the great Gerald Salente. Sonia Elijah, the journalist, will be on with me on Thursday. On burglaries and the police, Sean came on Twitter to say he was burgled in the 90s. Yorkshire police came for details, etc. Saw my picture of Ireland and Oma. They asked me if it was where I was from. I said yes. They then said 
Uh, he's one of those. I was shaken up at the time, but it was something I will never forget, says Sean. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please don't if you got through to me yesterday. And keep it succinct. Keep it succinct. Let's move it along swiftly. The details then. It's your call. Skype. Chat with Richie. Or call 0161 818 2018. If you're calling from overseas, it's plus 44161 818 2018. Talk to Richie now. Get on the dog and bone then. Get on the dog and bone. I look forward to talking to you. Look forward to it so I do. Great to be with you this Tuesday. The Richie Allen Show is the world's most popular independent news radio show. Listen on demand via your regular podcast provider. Yeah, I nearly said ACDC there. That would have been a bit silly. Um, ZZ Top, of course. Great Netflix documentary. I don't know if it's still on Netflix, if you happen to subscribe to it. There was a terrific ZZ Top documentary, which I saw a year or so ago. Very good if that is your thing. Here are the contact details. Keep me a company. Here's the details. They are pinned to richieallen.co.uk on Comment Live, by the way. It's your call. Skype. Chat with Richie. Or call 0161 818 2018. If you're calling from overseas, it's plus 44161 818 2018. Talk to Richie now. Yeah, thought there might be some takers on the police. Uh, pa- Patrick says we mustn't forget that Blair is just a gopher for the real rulers of the world and helped implement the globalist and satanic agendas gathering pace. However, he is still a war criminal and needs to be punished. I don't hold out any hope whatsoever. I gave up a long time ago that Tony Blair would ever face justice in this life, Patrick, myself. Christine in Limavady. Hi, Christine. The bloody COVID nonsense is still going on in our local hospital. Unfortunately, Jesse, my husband, has been diagnosed with AF. Basically, his heart is skipping a beat. And as he had a bypass aged 50 over 24 years ago, it could be an issue. So last night he sat in A&D on a chair. After three hours, a nurse came over and said, I'm just going to stick this swab up your nose. He said, you're not sticking anything up my nose. Uh, She said, you need a COVID test. He refused again. Uh, The morning, in the morning, they tried to say he wouldn't get a bed if he didn't take the test. So be it, he said. He's home now after seeing the cardiologist, but I'll phone in next time. She says, that's an interesting one. Christine, let's go to the mobile phones. Caller, welcome to the programme. Who am I speaking with? Good evening, Richie. This is Robert from North London once again. How are you doing, sir? How are you doing, Robert? Robert, it rings a bell, but I'm guessing it's been a long time since we spoke. That's fine. Let, let me just fill you in. I was the dude that um, was, was nabbed and carpeted at work for sneaking um, my unjabbed self into a uh, work Christmas party. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, it has been a long time. Good good to chat with you it again, Robert. It has been a long time, and a lot has happened since then, uh, Richie. Richie. <laughs> Yeah, remember, remind our listeners about that. Get, get going to your Christmas party, even though you were told right. you shouldn't go because you didn't have the job. Yeah, and I, and I hadn't had a, a um, what's his name, a, uh, a test, um, a, a negative test, and all the rest of it. And um, but, but the upshot of that is um, that they sort of got me anyway because they were handing out redundancies, and I was I was um, one of the flowers that got pruned. So I'm on the market at the moment. So I think they, I don't think that was the specific reason. 
And even if it were, I couldn't prove it. But uh, <laughs> that isn't really what I tell phones. No, but you know what, Robert? You, but, uh, Robert, you don't have to be Alfred Einstein, as I said, to put two and two together. Hmm? It's obviously the reason yeah. they moved you on, right? Of course. I, I think that's part of it. I think I was a, a pretty much a, seen as a square peg in a round hole because I've, I have a measure of common sense and I was seen as the, uh, as the go-to conspiracy theorist that everybody avoided but liked to speak to when nobody else was looking, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of um, sense. To be honest with you, you strike me yeah. as the sort of person I like and you're the sort of person that corporate people don't like because when something is suggested to you or... Or, or is demanded of you, you're the one in 20 blokes who asks why. Explain this to me. This doesn't make any sense. And they don't like guys like yeah. you, Robert. Absolutely not. Um, as a result of my job hunting, I've actually been putting myself out uh, there on the, uh, the, the social media platform that they call LinkedIn. And it's funny, that Richie, that you have to wear two hats. You have to wear the corporate hat and cannot respond to anything. I mean, we're talking about um, um, WWF, all that kind of stuff. A lot of the people that um, worked in the Zurich office have actually gone to work for the World Economic Forum now. They've actually gone. What does and that? they're proud of that too. What does that mean? Explain that. Well, we're talking about people. I work for an insurance underwriter. And obviously that is allied to finance and all the rest of the sort of the, the crooked system in which we, uh, in which we sort of held in fraud, I suppose. But um, so these guys, um, they're very well connected and they leave these high paying jobs in, in the corporate world and go to the actual, I call the nether world, which is the, you know, the movers and shakers, the people that are actually doing this to us in the first place. Right. And they are strangely proud of this, Richard. Amazingly proud of it. Meaning that they, on some level, not on some level, that they they buy it, they buy into it, they believe that it's the right thing to do. Completely. Yeah. 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 You know the mass mass formation theory where you've got thirty percent on one side of the board, thirty percent at the other, and the middle forty percent are undecided. These people are completely. They're literally they're beyond redemption. They cannot be saved. They, do, they don't see it as being saved anyway. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. They're actually per, they, they, they're perfectly happy to sort of, if you said, well, listen, you know that, that Philemon Young, there's actually really a ground-up child in there. Like, oh, really? I wonder why it tasted that unusual. Can you pass the salt? Right. It's a bit like that. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that's what these people are like. But so, I mean... It, I, in terms of the police, I caught the end of it because I sort of logged on a little bit later, but I caught, um, I caught the end of some of this. Now, um, the police, we, we've got no duty or no, um, no, uh, no compunction to, to speak to, no obligation, if you like, to speak to the police. There is a ruling in 1966 uh, called Rice Connolly. I actually posted it on, Rice versus Connolly, I actually posted it on the site, on the live comment where we actually, there is no obligation for us to even court, talk, talk to the police and they accompany them anywhere. So if they say, well, listen, you're coming with me. Say, well, not unless I'm arrested, I'm not. And I think it just takes a little bit of courage to actually stand up and say, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. We're talking about, we're talking about, very... we're talking about consent policing here, are we? Policing by consent. We are talking about consent. 
Yeah, and we, we, we are talking about, in, to a large extent, bullying and intimidation as well, and hubris on the, on the part of the police, because they've been obeyed for, oof, ever since the peelers were around. I mean, you, they give you a crack on the back of the head of the truncheon and haul you away, and that yeah. pretty much be it. And that was what they, um, what they used to intimidate us with. And um, a lot more people now, which are saying, actually, no. Would you, can you explain that to me? I'm not being funny with you, officer, or constable, or whatever. Or constable spelt with a C, I do. Um, not just that. I said, well, can you just explain to me what your position is and why you think I should do exactly what you, you're telling me to do? Yeah, now when you, do, when you do approach the situation like that and you ask the officer in attendance to give an explanation... From what I understand, it still generally results in a bad outcome for the innocent bystander because they are increasingly becoming paramilitary-like in the way they dress and in the way they behave. Mm -hmm. And they're inclined to drag people off, Robert. You know, I I imagine a few years ago, you might have gotten away with saying, Officer, listen, um, I'm completely relaxed here. Could you explain yourself, please? Because I don't understand what I might have done wrong or whatever. You might have gotten somewhere. These days, they're in, I mean, we see the videos online. They're, in time, you know, they're, they're inclined to kind of pile on top of you, six or seven guys, and then haul you off, right? Absolutely, yeah. And now, that is, that is basically where, you're, um, where the law stops. Uh, what we're told to be the law, but I mean, the, the system is kind of crooked anyway, really. When barristers and advocates are talking to one another and they refer to one another as my learned friend, Richie, they're not joking. They are part of the club, and we are, as the great George Carlin said, we're not in it. We're not in it, yeah. Um, and why would people, um, why would people propose, um, purport to be in search of justice when they speak in a completely different language? These people are English. They speak legalese. You've it only, sounds yeah. a little bit like English, but it's it's absolutely nothing like it. Just read a contract. So everything's been just read a yeah, contract. Precisely. Absolutely, it's you know I have a degree uh, in English. I look at a contract and I think, what the hell does any of that mean? Precisely. Uh, yeah. And who draws up contracts? Lawyers, because Lawyers. so they're making they're making. Uh, work for themselves and uh, you know um for instance i'm going through probate at the moment because um, i had a death in the family just before christmas and um i just it's literally it, it is a minefield richie and when they say from cradle to grave they are not joking the hmrc basically want to reach their hand almost into the coffin or the crematorium urn and, and pull out any spare change that might be in there that's that's exactly what i'm getting and the amount of forms one has to fill out as well. Uh, selling a house is another thing. You cannot sell it without a, a lawyer of some sort. Yeah. You can't literally, I can't walk up to you and Frog Tremendo and say, Richie, here's a hundred thousand pounds in cash as a deposit. I'll give you the other 600,000 pounds when I've done the survey. How about it? Yeah. I can't do that. No, you can't. We have to have a lawyer on. Yeah. This is very good. We, 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 we should be able to go to somebody in the community of 
um, somebody respected a respected elder. We should be able to go to the parish priest. We should be able to go to Dr. Malloy or go to the local yes. police officer and say, would you witness this, please? Robert has just purchased my house. Yeah. But you can't do yeah. that, Robert. Hey, listen, before, because I, I, I am getting calls coming in. No, I, I won't keep you too no, long. No, I want to ask you this. I want to, I, want, I, I want to ask you a question. Um, go ahead. You missed, obviously, some of the programme. Where, where, where I see a lot of this going is um, they're changing policing drastically. And uh, I came across a couple of years ago a really interesting article by a guy called Marr in Forbes magazine. And he said, ultimately, things are going to move into pre-crime detection using artificial intelligence, which is monitoring our behaviours. It's going to move into robotics and all sorts of stuff, you know, the Internet of Things, where police officers, in terms of the physical human being, will ultimately become less useful or ultimately redundant. Do you go along with that? Do you see that? Is that where it's going? That's part of the end game, yes, of course, yeah. because um, why break... If it's not broke, why don't you know? Why fix it? I mean, and it's like that machine is only going to get better. These people have been doing this for centuries, and they're getting better and better and better. And we're also. Um, I remember there was an interview with Mark, the great Mark Windows, who I who I love very much, and a guy called Richard Willett. Richard Willett opined, and this was a long while ago. He said. Um, they were talking about COVID jabs and all the rest of that nonsense. And he was saying, it's literally like the, um, the chosen people taking, being taken on the buses to Bergen-Belsen. They were told they were going to a happy place. So what they did is they, can, they co-opted all of their friends. Look, come with us. We're going to have a shower. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a little bit... Uh, no, but that's anti-Semitic and I'm going to be cancelled now. So uh, having been said, said that... <laughs> Well, I'm not going. I, 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 I'm not going to cancel you, even though I completely disagree with you. But uh, uh, no, yes. no, I know what you mean. But yeah, so I, I just, uh, I, just a short answer to your your, your question is that yes, I think they will use everything in their arsenal, and their weapons are just getting better. Robert, good to hear from you again, mate. I hope you get back to regular work soon and enjoy the market. I'll, works. Be, I'll be fine. Good I'm employable, I'm, I'm optimistic, so it's a matter of time. But thank you, Richard. You're welcome, Robert. Stay Thanks well. for that. Just don't mention anything about showers in, <laughs> in any job interviews. I completely disassociate myself with those remarks, even if he was joking. Um, but I get the general tenet of the point he was making. Um, yes, a lot of... Uh, it, it has been documented that... Um, and we've seen this elsewhere throughout history. You know, they... Why we, We've asked the question a million times over the years, people who've read history, who've studied history, why did so many people get on the trains? Why did so many people get on the buses to end up in Sobibor and Treblinka and Dachau? Why? The answer is because mass formation and, the, and being sold by everybody else, that's not going to be the end of the world. It's only going to be for a while and then we'll get back to normal. But they didn't. Many of them didn't get back to normal. Many of them died. Here are the contact details very briefly before I take another telephone call. It's uh, the Richie Allen Show, 20 past six. It's your call. Skype. Chat with Richie. Or call 0161 818 2018. If you're calling from overseas, it's plus 44 161 818 2018. Talk to Richie now. And like I said, the details are on richieallen.co.uk. Live comment back to the telephone lines. Caller, you are very welcome. Who am I speaking with? Hello, Richie. It's Dean from Leyland. How you doing, Dean? 
I'm very well, thank you, Richie. You? Yeah, not too bad, my friend. Thank you. Good to hear from you. Um, the floor is yeah, yours. Yeah. I am going to move it along swiftly because I'm getting bombarded with calls, Dean. Go ahead, my friend. Be a very quick one. You mentioned yesterday all this controversy about electric vehicles and their efficiency and so on, the fact that they're less efficient during the winter time and so on. Yeah, am I right in I saying ele- that, by the way? Sorry? Am I right in saying that or am I wrong? You're wrong in saying that. Um, I have an electric vehicle. I've had it for approximately 12 months, so I've got some experience about using it on a daily basis through different seasons and so on. It is less efficient in the winter. That's the nature of the batteries on the car. But it, it isn't that less efficient that it actually affects the economy of the car to any real degree. It's probably anywhere between 20, 20 and 10% less efficient if it's very, very cold. But the upshot of it is, compared to an internal combustion engine, whether it be a petrol one or whether it be a diesel one, even diesel cars are affected by cold weather, and so are petrol cars are less efficient. So you can make a comparison with that, but overall... It's a cost saving using an electric vehicle. That was my next. Uh, that was my. Engine. That was my next question. Then, so you've obviously driven every type of vehicle. So you're finding yeah. the, the electric vehicle is cheaper to run then. Considerably cheaper. For example, I don't do a lot of miles. I do. A, I walk mostly, but I do use an electric car. So the total mileage I've done for the year is, is just over three thousand miles, but it's cost me in electrical consumption using my charger which i have at home for the, to do 3000 miles it's cost me about 85 pounds that's fantastic for the year. that is fantastic so that, that's how much it costs simple as that so you can't compare that if it, if i used a petrol car or a diesel car to do 3000 miles it would cost me at least five times as much as that and i love hearing this genuinely and i would love to be thinking about, yeah, well, Dean has sold me on the economy of it, but of course, at the back of my mind, I am thinking that there are some pretty horrible reasons why they want me to drive an electric car, you know? Exactly, I agree with all the horrible reasons, but unfortunately, we are up against a system, an establishment and a system where these things are being forced upon us regardless. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. So we either have to make a choice now, or we're forced to make a choice at some later stage, like everything is. It's like with the cash, for instance, where you know, we're in a situation where people are trying to keep cash alive, but once they decide that cash is no longer, as a promissory note, has any value, then the cash will be valueless. And so by people that are trying to keep cash alive wanting to spend cash on a regular basis, all that does is actually hastens the, the, the removal of cash because it's taken away at some source at some point in time through the major banks, and it's got, you know, if, it's, if it's paper money, it will be burnt. And so by spending cash to keep cash alive, it, we're doing actually the opposite. And at whatever point in time they want to cancel cash, they will cancel it. And the same when they decide they want to cancel the internal combustion engine uh, and the, the supply of fuel, whether it be petrol or diesel, then that will be cancelled. And yesterday... So I'm, I'm a truther, I'm a conspiracy theorist, but at the end of the day, we've got to be a realist well, and understand realist, that these yeah. things are forced upon us. Yeah, you're, you're, no, it, yeah, I, I get you 100%. I wouldn't argue with any of that. A realist yeah. is right. And yesterday they said, we're going to bring forward the net zero target by 10 years. And yeah, we can see it being changed again. I mean, I agree with you, Dean. I mean, who's to say that in 2027, they might say, right, listen, we said we'd stop producing diesel and petrol cars in 2030, but we're going to do it now. Who's to say that he yeah. won't do it in 2025? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the car that I have, it has quite a large battery on it. 
in the summertime, when it's fully charged, it will do just short of 370 miles with a full charge. So I only charge it once a fortnight. It costs me to charge the car because I, I, I don't use that many miles. It costs me less than about eight pounds a month to charge the car. That is fantastic. And tell me this, I've got to ask you this as a pedestrian myself, do you have to be extra careful regarding pedestrians because your car is very quiet? No, because it gives a sound out all the time, up to 30 miles an hour. It gives a, a fictitious sound to warn pedestrians and cycle, you know, oh, users, etc. Oh, does it? Right. That's brilliant. I didn't, I didn't know the, that. But yeah. the thing is, I've driven, I'm in my 60s, and I've driven cars of every description, from Rolls-Royce to Reliant three-wheel cars. I've driven <laughs> every type of car you can name them, I've driven them. And I will never swap an electric car for an internal combustion engine car. Because, first of all, the more economical... They're quieter. In my opinion, they're a lot safer because they have what's called a regeneration system in each car, which regenerates the energy, and you actually get energy from the momentum of the car. And because of the system, it's actually almost like a braking system. So you can actually drive the car just using one foot if you want to do. But what that does, it harvests the energy from the momentum and puts more charge back into the battery, but it actually makes it safer to drive. Am I, am, I, am I actually talking to Dean or is this somebody from Prius who's on to try and sell us some of these cars? I think, I think you're pulling the wool over our eyes, Dean. I think you're a salesman. No, no, I'm joking, no, by the way. No, I'm, joking, no, I'm, I'm joking, just, by the way. I'm just a user of the car. I'm joking. No, I'm if, I, to... if I get a motoring correspondent for the show, I'm going to give you a call uh, to do the job. Right. So, 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 so tell me this then. Um, there are yeah. enough charging points, at least as far as you know and as far as you've experienced, charging points are not a problem. There are plenty of them, right? There are, plenty, there are plenty of charging points, but I think you've got to have a, a system where you, ideally, and it doesn't suit everybody because not everybody's got off-road parking where they can charge the car themselves, but that's the main method, really. You should be able to charge the car yourself. Now, the, the problem is it's all dependent on your domestic electricity tariff, which we know we're at the mercy of all the, you know, the charges yeah. that are being yeah, yeah. changed all the time, and the, those charges are going up. But I think that ultimately there will be, there used to be, and, and they're reintroducing it where you can charge at off-peak times, like they used to have the Economy 7 and so on, where you can charge the car at a timer during the night when everything else is switched off in the house, and then it's more economical to charge the car that way. Um, and so that's the things that will happen. But I also think that things are changing where the, the, the cars will ultimately, everybody will have electric cars, but there won't be as many cars because the, a lot of people, unfortunately will be priced out of the car market. Um, there's a limited amount of the actual elements like lithium and so on to make, make the batteries. The, yeah. the amount of cars that people will think that we need. I don't think we'll have any more where we'll have two, three, four car families anymore. And the car, this is, my, again, my, my prophecy, is that the cars which they will produce will have smaller batteries, which will have, based on the 15-minute cities, will have limited range. So you may have a car that will only do 100 miles maximum range with a smaller battery, and I think that is ultimately where the future is going, rather than cars with larger batteries, which will have larger ranges. You've answered, um, you've answered all the questions I was going to ask you just, just, just next. Brilliant, because I was going to ask you, I was going to say, look, you and I probably believe that they don't want us driving anything, and that includes electric cars. They don't want us to have that freedom, and yeah. you've just answered the question as to where you think it might go. Brilliant, uh, brilliant call, Dean. And thanks for correcting think, me on the um, on the battery lifespan of the car during the winter. I read this on the BBC website or somewhere. So uh, yeah, it's good it, to get it, the other side. It is certainly a 
by the cooler temperatures and it's affected how efficiently the battery charges. That's a physical, chemical fact. But it's no less efficient ultimately because you're charging, you're actually costing you less for the energy that you put in. But also, I mean, I've had diesel cars and they are less efficient. If you have a diesel car, you'll know that it's less efficient uh, for urban traffic during the winter time because yeah. it takes so much longer to warm up compared to a, a petrol car and so also compared to an electric car. You're bang on. Dean, that's a fantastic call, mate. Really oh. glad you got through. Lovely to hear from you. Oh, okay, Richie. Thanks, thanks that, for speaking to no, me. No, my pleasure. Thanks for that. That's a brilliant call, that. And Dean is basically, he, he understands where everything is going, doesn't he? Um, unequivocal about where it's going. And because it's going there, and they ultimately don't want us driving any cars, makes no difference to him at the moment. The electric car, e- e- economy-wise, is the best thing for him. And he's actually not enabling what is coming by doing what he is doing because he it's completely out of his control what's going to happen when they stop making or manufacturing diesel and petrol cars, which they will do. Yeah, but he did say, didn't he, that a lot of people will be priced out of the electric cars because they're very expensive. I have to confess, um, I changed my car about five months ago. Well, I don't have to confess that I told you. I was driving an estate car, Renault Megane. I am driving an estate car now. It is a diesel. I didn't even look at the time at electric cars. It never even occurred to me. Uh, contact details before I take my next call. It's kind of busy. So. It's your call. Skype. Chat with Richie. Or call 0161 818 2018. If you're calling from overseas, it's plus 44161 818 2018. Talk to Richie now. And it is 29 minutes to 7. Caller, you are very welcome. Who am I speaking with? Good evening. Hello. Hello there. Just turn me off in the background there momentarily, please. I can hear myself on the device. And we'll, uh, we'll have a chat then. I'll give you a chance to do that. 0161818 Dear listener, you can Skype me. It's chat with Richie on the Skype. Now, are we back? We're back. Good evening. Hello? I, I can hear you loud and clear. Who am I speaking with? Robbie. Robbie, how are you, Robbie? And where are you, more importantly? I'm in Scotland. Robbie, I think we've spoken but a long time ago. Am I right? No, no. I've never gone through before. Oh, fantastic. Well, welcome. Good to chat with you, my friend. What would you like to say? Um, oh, so many different things, but... <clears throat> one, of my, one of the things uh, that interests me a lot is um, all the false flag attacks and how we never get proper explanations for what happens. Give us an example now of one that might be on your mind. Are you thinking like September the 11th or uh, the 7th of July or the Boston Marathon? Th- this type of thing, Robbie? Well, yeah, those, the Boston Marathon is the one that set me off. Yeah. Um, because of the, the documentary, The Boston Unbombing. But, but the British ones, because I know you don't... You see that, like... Um, Seven seven, for example. There's holes in the floor of the trains. It's obvious they were not done by these guys with bombs made out of shampoo. Yeah. But we never get an explanation. It's obvious it's C four explosives. Now hang on, when you say we never get an explanation, you sound to me like a pretty bright fella. They're never going to admit this stuff, Robbie. 
Of course they're not going to give us... I mean, if it was staged, which I believe it was, 100%, um, they're hardly going to confess, yeah, okay, it was us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but we never get the right information. Like, for instance, I know you think Manchester Arena is a legitimate bombing. Well, I, I, I don't know what happened there other than some people were very badly hurt there. Now, how they were hurt, that's up for debate and people are entitled to their opinions and I will allow that, obviously, because this is an open forum. I have no problem with it. Um, but I'm convinced that people were badly hurt there. Yeah, well, the thing is, what's the explanation for the shiny tiled floor being exactly the same today as it was then? We need to be a video. We, we need to be a video show, don't we, Robbie? Because if we're a video show, we can we can show this. We can well, demonstrate the, it to the, the listeners. But the, the 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 witnesses are very um, what's they're they're duplicitous. They're they have got um, deception in their answers. They're like the the one guy um, who's who's screaming for his daughter, and they're screaming back at him, uh, taking the Mickey out of him because there's nothing going on. And the concert's still going on in the background. It's meant to be, it's meant to be over. It's meant to be thirty-one minutes past ten. And then they, they they claim there was flashes and smoke, and the type of bomb wouldn't have had a flash. And then they say he he was split in two with a bomb, and then he got arrested in a car down the road. You never see the video of the guy walking in and blowing himself up. No, here's the... Well, they, well, they wouldn't put that out there anyway. Even if they had it, they wouldn't be allowed for, for obvious reasons, for sensitivity reasons. But no, here's... But look at the IRA bombs. You used to see them. The Birmingham, uh, the Birmingham one. The, the, the explosion's immense. There's half bricks flying all over the place. You never saw anything like that. Yeah, I've never seen any video footage of the bombing in Birmingham. That's interesting now. But um, c- c- is it possible, right? Um accepting that it's all a bit weird and I hear you, right? Look, first of all, first of all, the people who are in charge of dealing with things like the Manchester Arena situation, they their excuse for the for the differing stories, for the different witness accounts, they, they always blame it on, it was chaos at the time, we didn't know what was going on, so you've got to take everything with a pinch of salt. I'm not saying that's what I'm saying, I'm saying that's what they say. But isn't it possible if you believe that it was staged? First of all, Robbie, this is a genuine question. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of it. Yeah. If the Manchester Arena bombing was a staged event, what would be the... And this is a genuine... Not, I'm not trying to catch you out. What would be the reason for that? What would be the payoff for doing something like that? Bringing in new terror laws. Um, Fair all, enough. All these... Um, See, some of the fault, like 7-7, seven, seven, that, that was genuine, but it looks like the British state did it. Because it's military. Even Birmingham looks like that was the British state. But um, the reason for doing it is to bring in more stricter control. To scare people it's like into you go accepting... It's Manchester Arena yeah. now. You get, you, you've, you've got to go through those... Um, Airport scanners. Metal detectors and everything. I've said that. I was at the very first gig at the arena following the whatever happened, following the the uh, the attack, let's call it. I was at the very first show and uh, I've never seen anything like it. I put photographs of it online 
uh, we would be regular visitors to the arena. I know the arena backwards, inside and out, and uh, couldn't believe the change. So yeah, I can I can buy that. Introduce new um, anti-terror laws, and people are so scared and so horrified that they'll say, "Okay, I, I can buy that." Yeah, absolutely. But I also cool, know I, I I also do know personally, and I, why would I say this? Um, people who treated people who had been brought to hospital following that. Now the people who did the treating, they don't know what happened there. But all of a sudden, they were dealing with people with big chunks taken out of them. You see, yeah. Robbie. So how did that happen? Well, the photos the photos look like the the their clothes have been cut with scissors, not being blown off them like they were in a real bomb, but. There's there's loads of things that don't add up about that one. I'm not going to deny that. Listen, I've seen some of the same videos you've seen and it doesn't make sense to me sometimes. I don't know what to make of it. I can buy the idea. Listen, let's not forget the man they blame for bombing the arena, a man called Salman Abedi. His father was an MI6 asset Known that's as Agent I mean. Tunworth. That's who it looks like doing all these false flag attacks. It's not just yeah. that. The Westminster Bridge, the London Bridge, like the guy with the, the narwhal tusk getting wrestled to the ground. That was mental, that wasn't it? Yeah. This... That was that was just 2019. Yeah. That, that looks so fake. He's dancing about on the pavement and someone's scooshing him with a, a fire extinguisher. And then when they're all ready, they all pop up, and then they, they shoot them, bang, bang. And then he starts moving because he, he moves his coat on his head, and then he moves his coat off his head. And that was on the media. I've seen that on the day. Cause so, that, so did that I. That was the time when I started looking into these things. I agree with you, right? so fake. And there's another video of the guy actually sitting up. Listen, he's be- meant he got two bullets in him. Let me just say this, because I am going to have to take more calls, but hang on, stay with me for a minute. I agree with you. But here's the frustrating thing. And this is going to piss you off. You can show that stuff to people. And I'm sure you've tried to, Robbie. And they'll just, ah, give over, Robbie, will you? Give over. I've had that for the best part of 15 years now. Saying to people, have a look at this September 11th video. Have a look at this. Building 7 is standing behind her. Can't get anywhere, Robbie. Here's another one. Well, just a quick one on uh, 9-11. Those... Buildings they turn into powder in ten seconds. Yeah, into dust. Yeah. If 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 they had fallen, like you're talking about half a million tons each tower, it, they'd be about thirty stories high. You'd have massive the blocks of big but, bricks everywhere, huge big chunks of concrete. But they turn into powder. That yeah. has got to be some kind of sophisticated new weapon. And the planes are doing 580 miles an hour. We never get an explanation for that. That's an impossible speed for those planes. I interviewed a pilot. 200 miles an hour is all they can do at that altitude. I interviewed a pilot. Um, In fact, I interviewed several real pilots who told me that nobody who has never flown a 727, nobody could hijack it and be skillful enough to pilot it to hit the Twin Towers. For an unexperienced person who's not flown these things, that would be like me and you trying to hit a golf ball, trying to hit a hole in one basically. I know. Yeah. But the, there's something fishy about the planes because they're going three times faster than possible. They do they do like a bunny hop on a BMX bike on a right turn to, to make sure they hit the tower. Yeah, and nobody now was... They can do it. 
they can do that with missiles. You know, the yeah. missiles go at that speed, 600 miles an hour. And missiles can change direction. Tell me this, Robbie. I'm going to have to take more calls. Calls are flying in. What, I mean, I mean, there's very little you or I can do about this stuff other than talk about it. Because as I said, and I'm not trying to bring down your, to bring your vibration down, but speaking to anybody about this stuff, you're wasting your time, Robbie, aren't you? You, but you, the police have got to start investigating. Oh, they never will, Robbie. Forget about it. Forget about no, the police. No, but you've got two sets of police. You've got the police who are corrupted and they're actually just working for MI5 forever. But the other police have got to, they've got to grow some balls and say we've got to investigate this. It's the same with the the COVID thing. Why don't we know <coughs> how much midazolam, the, the people who died in the care homes and the death spikes, we, we've got to know these details. How much midazolam were they given? How often were they given it? Is that enough to kill a healthy person, never mind a sick person? These are answers. We should be getting answers to these sort of questions. It drives me up the wall. Because I've been to the police station and asked them, why is nobody getting prosecuted for forcing vaccination? And what do they say? I mean, they, it's, they force vaccination on people. And when you go and to no, the police officer, Robbie, Robbie, when you go to the... Excuse me. When you go to the police yeah. station and you say, hey, listen, this is not what's going on, what uh, what response do you get? Well, the woman told me to get out of the police office because it's not a police station anymore. It's an office in the um, in the, the council building. And she told me, I says, but this is, this is breaking the law. She told me herself, the woman, she got right angry and right agitated. She says, I, I decide what the law is. That's what she actually said. This is how agitated she was. You can bring evidence of a crime to some of these people. You can have it all wrapped up for them with a ribbon tied around it, and they're not interested. Robbie, I'm going to take more calls, but um, yeah, sure. when you ha- <laughs> when, when you hang up, I'm going to play a bit of audio that you might have heard before. Um, it's a guy called Peter Power speaking on the evening yeah. of the seventh of July, twenty two thousand and five. So I'm going to play that. Thanks for your call, mate. Nice to meet you, Robbie. Okay. Okay, thanks. Brilliant call, buddy. Brilliant call. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Peter Power spoke to ITN News on the 7th of July 2005. Remember, we were told by the, the media and we were told by the Metropolitan Police in London and we were told by counter terrorist officers that four men had come to London from Leeds and they had blown themselves up on trains and on a bus. And they had killed about 70 people. I can't remember the death toll. That's what they told us, right? Right. On the evening, now the dust is still flying around from these explosions. Peter Power, speaking to ITN News, dropped this bombshell. This is proof, not near as damn it proof. This is proof, irrefutable proof, that the 7th of July bombings in London were the very definition of a false flag attack. Issue. Uh, today we were running an exercise for a company, bearing in mind I'm now in the private sector, and we sat everybody down in the city, a thousand people involved in the whole organisation, but the crisis team, and the most peculiar thing was we based our scenario on the simultaneous attacks on the underground and mainline station. So we had to suddenly switch an exercise from fictional to real. And one of the first things is, get that bureau number, when you have a list of people missing, tell them. And so it took a long to- time. Just to get this right, Listen you were actually working today 
on an exercise that envisioned yes. virtually this scenario? Uh, almost precisely. I was up until 2 o'clock this morning because it, it's our job, my own company, Visor Consultants, we specialize in helping people to get their crisis management response. How do you jump from slow time thinking to quick time doing? And we chose a scenario with their assistance which is based on a terrorist attack because they're very close to uh, a property occupied by Jewish businessmen. They're in the city and there are more American banks in the city than there are in the whole of New York. A logical thing to do. And it, I've still so got how, the... I was going to say, how extraordinary today <laughs> must feel for you as, as it unfolds. You, you mentioned a few moments ago there our experience with Irish Republican terrorism. Yeah. The and presenter was is, wasn't it? I suppose, the worst radio television presenter the in the history of the world. That's extraordinary, Peter. So you're telling me that as these bombs were going off in London, you, Peter, were running a drill imagining pretty much the exact same scenario, imagining bombs going off in the same locations. That's right, that's right. And we had to move from exercise to real world. Hang on a second, Peter, hang on. Explosions went off in London today. Dozens, scores of people are dead. And you're telling me, Peter, that the mother of all coincidences, you were running a terrorist drill at the same locations as the bomb went off, Peter. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. And then the presenter says, uh, let's talk about IRA bombs and stuff like that. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. I think we can go back to the calls and I think it's time to say hello to Tim. How are you doing, Tim? Can oh, you? hello, Richie. Can you, you hear is, me all? I can hear you really well. Is this the first time we've spoken? It is, yeah. I thought so because the reason I, 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 it sounds like I'm, um, it sounds like I'm a parrot parroting myself. I'm asking everybody that tonight, but no, I know that we know each other through social media and through through the website. But I kind of thought you you hadn't ever gotten through or you hadn't attempted to get through to the phone, and so you're very oh. welcome. How was Ollie? Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, just left him actually. I'll, um. Sometimes when I get from work, I have a little wander. And, uh, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's brilliant. Brilliant, yeah, man. He's playing with his Xbox. Oh, he's playing with his Xbox. He's um, a good man. Good man. Good to have yeah, you on. Good man. Yeah. What, what would you like to say, Tim? It's all yours, the floor. Uh, well, 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 a million things. But um, yesterday, touched me. Um, there was a lady on there yesterday. Uh, and I can't recall her name, unfortunately. But she's speaking about her family. And... Um, how her sons, I think it was, that weren't speaking to her, they'd sort of stopped talking to her. Yeah, um, it was Angela. Angela, yeah. Yeah, it and, was Angela. Um, on, yeah, honestly, uh, it's really quite upsetting, actually. This, and um, mine's the other kind of way out, uh, other way. Um, after all that's happened these last few years, uh, like my family now, they want to, they've buried it. And they want to talk, but they want to talk about Nothing but just nothing, just weather, celebrities, GMTV, the latest, whatever. And I can't bring myself to talk to them. Right. So the family back back in the back in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, the family bought the bought the narrative. And I mean, you do your best to try and say, look, there's another side of it. Now it's more apparent than ever that you were right and the family just want to talk about 
mundane things they don't want to get involved my, yeah my dad um, he's getting on he's 80 now but uh, like uh, about uh, about a year ago do you remember when it like sort of it did dawn on people about a year ago I think um, and my dad said to me um, I went round there and I'd only been I've only literally been round there about half a dozen times in the last couple of three years because they didn't want to know they really didn't want to know and Apparently, I was killing granny and whatever. And um, my dad said to me, oh, uh, I mentioned COVID. And my dad said, oh, um, oh, that's all over now. We don't want to talk about it. Just that was it in the conversation. You and see, to me, it was like, You're in a terrible situation. And a friend of mine and my missus, by the way, were in the same situation. Because you know yeah. the jabs are potentially very harmful you know this and you also yeah. know that your dad and in my missus in caroline's case her mum just doesn't want to know but you're compelled to say something because you know the risks are very real i can't think of a worse situation to be in i've not experienced that myself i don't i i'm kind of estranged from my family not from all of them but i i didn't yeah. have that situation um tim how horrible that is and you went through that I was never, I was always like the black sheep of the family a little bit because I was always a conspiracy theorist. Right. Yeah. Um, so I was always looked upon as like, you know, 9-11. You, go back, you can go back all to everything. You were asking questions about it. And I look at it now the last few years. It wasn't, I was just kept more informed. And I suppose... So I don't want to say they're dumb. No, 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 I get you. Uh, and, and I suppose when you were talking to your dad about COVID, your dad is probably thinking... Ah, well, Tim's got form here, <laughs> you know. I remember he's Tim talking to me about September the 11th and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but another thing that's great for me is, like, he was, um, like, you, yourself, you, you know, that's when you say yourself, you're, you're uh, uh, an old-fashioned trade unionist. No. Yeah. And my dad would say, uh, should do it all his life. And it's all kicking the off there, it's all kicking off. Yeah, um, and I, oh, that's all my heart. And, um, my dad was always, um, my dad always told me all my life, like, stand up against the establishment type thing, you know, and being a shop steward, you know, and all that. Is somebody steward. being murdered in the background oh, there, Tim, or what's going on? There's, no, there... no, 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 it's just people leaving the... No, no, I, I, I'm joking. So your dad then was a contrarian. He was a trade unionist. He was somebody who asked questions, who stood up to authority, and then COVID comes along, and all of a sudden... He's meek, um, like everybody yeah. else, and he go just goes along with it. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah. Uh, we sat on the bench. Do you remember when it was really bad lockdown? And, like, um, we had to, like, I lost my girlfriend. My, me and my girlfriend stopped doing it, yeah. I don't, but things happened, because she was a bit like that. But anyway, and um, all I got was, oh, wow, because things a bit tricky. Yeah. <laughs> but, you see, I'm still carrying all this weight with me. But no one else is Yeah, but you can't, Tim. This is the thing, you can't. And and, and my, my better half has divested herself of this. You can't, because you can't live other people's lives for them. You can't. It's heartbreaking, yeah. you know, and, and who knows next year, God forbid, your dad might say, right, I'll have another one of those jabs. You can't. You don't have any responsibility. You've said, look, there is another side of it. All you can do then is live your own life. That's my opinion. Yeah, I think you yeah, you are you are absolutely. I've, I've been told that as well. Like, um, it's very hard for me myself because I'm I am you know, I'm the Trump boy. 
I just sometimes you wish you didn't know any of this, didn't you? You think I wish I was just blind to all of it. Yeah. I wish I got them something. I've had that. Yeah. I've had that. Tim, we're we're just about to run out of time. Would you believe? I've only got a couple of minutes before I've got to close uh, this off for fast approaching. <laughs> but um, it really, yeah. and the line is dropping out a little bit, and it sounds like it's absolute bedlam in your house there in the background. <laughs> it sounds like a party or something is going okay, on. But... Just, that, that lady yesterday, honest to God, uh, it honestly, got to you. So, so recognisable. You, no. Yeah, she was. She was speaking. Um, she no, was basically basically re- relaying your story. But I've heard so many people tell me the same story, not talking to loved ones over it. And yeah. I just hope that, you know, I think oh. your dad's not saying anything. He wants to move on. Just let him move on and get on with him because time is promised to nobody. You never know, you know, how many years you have left with him. But uh, no, it's a good call, Tim. Yeah. Thank you, sir. I'm just sorry, it's a bit slow. Not at all, pal. Not at all. No, no, no. Thanks, Tim. Good to hear from you. And regards to uh, to Ollie there. That's Tim. Uh, a lot of people gone through that last couple of years. You know, I mentioned it yesterday. I get emails. I receive emails. I don't get emails. I receive a lot of emails. And during, particularly during the summer of 2020, when the first lockdown was kind of eased a bit, we'd gone to... Where did we go to? I can't remember now. Cornwall did we go? 2020. And I was getting emails and correspondence from people who were saying, you know, they'd had a big falling out with um, family. Even in some cases it was, you know, ex, you know, couples who had split up and they were arguing over, over the children and whether they should wear masks and all of this sort of stuff was going on. It's a... Massive when you think of it, what was going on back in 2020 and how difficult it was for people who totally understood that it was a complete hoax, nonsense, a complete nonsense and part of a bigger, wider plan. And you had to coexist with people who, uh, well, they didn't see it like that. And many of them still don't see it like that. And they never will see it like that, no matter what you tell them. It's like I was saying to Robbie earlier on. Robbie said there are some serious questions about the Manchester bombing. He's right. There, there are questions. So September, September the 11th, the 7th of July, 2005. I just played you Peter Power's clip. But you can't show this stuff to most people. They don't want to know. It's the $64 million question. Why do they not want to know? And I've put some theories out there over the years which are total nonsense, you know. Best I can think of is, in many cases, people don't want to know because... Because then they might have to do something. Something else. If you accept that your government or the intelligence agencies of your country are capable of murdering their own citizens in order to scare the population into accepting draconian new laws. If you accept that, well then don't you have some responsibility to spread that message, but also to do something about it. And I think that's even more scary for some people, than terrorism is. Knowing that stuff is scary. It's not nice to wake up to this stuff. You know this, I know this. We've been there, worn the T-shirt and all the rest of it. Tomorrow on the programme, two very good guests. I don't have to tell you anything about Gerald Salente. Uh, Love the man. It's been a while since he was on. It's about time he came back on. And I'll also be joined by Christy Laura Grace tomorrow. She is a microbiologist. She's a very intelligent woman. 
We're going to talk to her. She'll be live from Wisconsin tomorrow evening on your Richie Allen show. Thanks to the callers. Brilliant stuff as usual. Thanks to you for phoning in. Closing out with this one from the Foundations. Enjoy. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. There's no footy on. God damn it. We'll have to watch something on the telly then. Hasta mañana. Bye.